Good morning. Thank you so much for making the effort to get out today. I know that uh, if getting out of your driveway was as uh, interesting as getting out of mine, it took some effort. So thank you. Um, as a matter of fact, I live in a cul-de-sac, and what we all know about cul-de-sacs is they're the last to be plowed. So it's, uh, it's all fun. So if y'all could all come over after church, we'll get everything cleared out. It'll be great. Nate, I think, is coming because he loves snow and shoveling snow so much. But uh, anyway, we're glad that you are here. And what a great way to start the new year, to worship together. And uh, you see, as we've already uh, looked at in our service, we're starting looking at the New City Catechism. The video you saw is just one of the resources available on the app or on the, uh, the web page, so that for each question, you can see a little bit of an explanation about what the question teaches, along with other resources. But today, we're also starting something else new. We're starting a new study. And we are beginning today a study of the book of Romans. Now, admittedly, I began this study with some fear and trepidation. Fear and trepidation because the book of Romans is the deepest and most extraordinary book, in my opinion, in the New Testament. I know I always say, oh, this is my favorite. This is my favorite. This is my favorite. And it's like the favorite of every guy who does my job in my theological tradition. Romans is just a beautiful book. The problem is the immensity of the book and what it teaches. And so as I begin it, I'm intimidated. I know that uh, one of the, the writers and, and preachers that I look up to, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great British preacher of the last century, took 16 years to get through the book of Romans. I did the math. That would take me very close to retirement, and so that could be a good plan. But uh, I'm not planning on taking 16 years, but we'll probably take 16 to 18 months as we go through it. Now, we will break it up with other things. For instance, we'll do two weeks and then have a study on stewardship and mission as our annual tradition. We'll obviously talk about Easter when that comes around and other things. But we're going to be here. Now, you may ask yourself, what kind of church would spend a year and a half studying one book of the Bible? A church that knows that the Word of God is the most precious thing that God has given us, because in it He reveals Jesus Christ. And we spend time in God's Word slowly and methodically because it is precious to us. And so we let God teach us through His Word. And that's what we're going to be doing over uh, the next months and uh, and. Epics of time. We'll just see how it goes. I've only outlined it through chapter 3, so we don't know how long the, the other chapters will take, but I'm excited and scared, so you can be praying uh, for me. This would be a great thing for you to study with your family or in your small group as well, as we look at some of the most uh, rich material in all of Scripture. Now, before we begin, let me give you a little bit of context about what's going on in the book of Romans. The, the book of Romans is a letter written by Paul to Christians in the city of Rome. It's interestingly not said to the church in Rome, and many commentators believe this is because inside of Rome there were believers who were part of several house churches. So there wasn't just one central church, probably, but several groups of believers who met together and uh, studied God and his word. And so Paul writes this letter to all the Christians who were in Rome. Now, interestingly enough, Paul writes this letter not because he knows these people, but particularly because he does not know these people. 
I know some people we'll see in Romans 16 at the end of the book, he names several people, but he doesn't really know this church. He didn't start this church as he did the churches in, for instance, Galatia or Corinth, who he writes letters to. This church he didn't start. As a matter of fact, we really don't know how this the, the, the churches got started in Rome. The best guess that people seem to have is that after Pentecost, which uh, is when the Holy Spirit came in power uh, upon the believers after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, that some of the people there must have lived and been from Rome. And so they took the story about the risen Jesus back to Rome, to the synagogues there, and that's where the gospel began to grow. We don't know. That's just our best guess because the scriptures don't teach us. What we do know is that Rome is the center of the Western world at this point in time. It is the most important location in the empire because it's the capital. What we know as well is that this letter is being written during a pivotal time in Roman history. Most likely the dating on the book, and this is always an interesting guess, is about 57 A.D. Now this is an important date because Nero who is uh, really uh, known for mass persecutions of the church, comes in less than five years later. And so this letter is being written to strengthen a group of Christians at a pivotal time in their history in the city of Rome. Now, Paul is writing this letter at the end of his third missionary journey. Now, missionary journey is what Paul would do in the Roman world. In the known world, he would go around and he would start new churches where they hadn't heard about Jesus. And interestingly enough, in chapter 15, which we'll see in a second, Paul had said that he had done this job so well that there was nowhere else for him to do this ministry. Now, that's a remarkable thing to say, that uh, in the, the years, the 20, 25 years he had been doing his ministry, that he had exhausted all the virgin territory in the center part of the Roman world. And so he's writing to Rome because he doesn't want his mission to end because he's accomplished a lot of it. He wants to keep going. See, Paul is a missionary, and he wants to continue to extend the kingdom beyond the places he's already planted churches to parts of the world where he hasn't. So he wants to go past Rome to Spain. And so he's writing this letter to the Romans so that they will know who he is and what he's about so that they can be a part of that mission as he takes the gospel to Spain. We see that at the uh, toward the end of the book of Romans in chapter 15. Paul writes uh, in verse 22, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, those people in Rome, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and there he's talking about modern-day Turkey, he's talking about modern-day Greece, he's talking about you know uh, the Middle East, he's talking about this whole area. He's saying, I don't have any more room for work in this area. Just an amazing statement. Uh, he says, and since I have longed for you many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul here is writing this letter. He's completed his third missionary journey. He's on his way. He's staying in uh, the city of Corinth. He's on his way to Jerusalem to deliver this offering that he hopes will be really extraordinary for goodwill between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. But he's got his eyes on the mission still. And he wants to go to Spain, but he needs partners in that ministry. And so he's writing to Rome. 
That's one of the reasons many believe that Paul is so thorough in this letter, because he's writing to a group of people that he hasn't met, he doesn't know, he hasn't taught them from the beginning. And so he gives a comprehensive view of his teaching so that they'll know what, who he is and what he's about. I mean, let's think about it. If someone asked you, ask you, asked you, yes, we've gone back to King James now. If someone asked you uh, to invest in something that they were a part of, you'd want to know a little about it. My children came home with this uh, story uh, from their college life. Uh, I won't tell you which one, but it was an interesting story that, uh, that I heard that a young man in one of their schools had decided that they wanted to ask their freshman girlfriend to marry them. Okay, that's not unusual if you're around a bunch of Christians. So one freshman wanted to ask another freshman to marry him in the future. But he wanted to go back to where they met, which was New York City. So this freshman came up with a great idea. Start a Kickstarter. Now, for those of you who don't know what Kickstarter is, that's a place online where you can go and propose an idea and other people can invest in your idea. So he started a Kickstarter so that he could raise the money to fly to New York to ask his girlfriend to marry him. Now, if someone invited me to that Kickstarter via email, I would have some questions. You know, one, how long have you known each other? You know, how well do you know each other? How sure are you that this is going to work out? Why do you need to fly to New York to ask her to marry you? And fifthly, why do you think I should give money for you to fly to New York to ask her to marry you? Well, now, it did reveal to me that I've been too shy to ask for money. Clearly, you could ask for money for anything. His, his Kickstarter was actually fully funded. He flew to New York. He asked a girl to marry him. She said yes, just so you know how the story goes. So obviously, it wasn't a bad idea. But Paul knows that as he writes to the Romans and wants them to join him in this mission, that he needs to tell them who he is and what he's about. And so that's what we read about in this letter to the Romans. So let's dig in. We're going to look at seven verses as we look at the beginning of this letter that Paul is writing to explain to the Romans who he is and what his mission is about and how they can be a part of it. Starting in verse 1 of Romans chapter 1. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace an apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called and belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we begin our study together, let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you for your goodness and grace. And we thank you that you have given us this rich and deep word. Lord, but as we come to it and marvel at it, we will not be benefited without the help of your spirit. And so we pray, O Lord, that your spirit will help each person in this room, that you will help the hearer, that they will not only hear these words, but understand them and believe them and be changed by them. And I pray, O Spirit, that you will help me that you overcome my weakness, my frailty, my error, my sin. 
to accomplish this glorious purpose, to speak your word to your people for their growth and your glory. Oh, Lord, we need you to help us. And even now, as we gather and and we begin uh, this message, Lord, we think of our brothers and sisters from Redemption Church, our partners in ministry, who are beginning even now their service in a new location for the first time. And we pray that you will bless them. We pray that their parking lot will be plowed. We pray that the lights will be on and the heat will work and that your spirit will move in them in this new era of their church's life. Bless them, especially Pastor, Pastor Park, Lord, as he brings the word. And now bless us as well, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we look at these first seven verses, we see sort of a classic uh, kind of letter. You know, we know who it's from, we know who it's to, and we see a little summary of what it's about. We're very familiar with this. When you write an email, you know, it says at the top, you know, from, you know, Chris at npchurch.org to you at your email address.com, right? And then it says subject. And that's kind of the way this letter is written. Now, fascinatingly enough, Paul doesn't give a very short description of who he is or who they are or what it's about. He gives a relatively long introduction. And once again, this is because Paul is introducing himself to a lot of people who don't know him and don't maybe know very much about the mission he's on. So we're going to walk through these seven verses, and we're going to look at three things. One, we're going to look at the identity of this man who's on a mission. Secondly, we're going to look at the message that is at the center of the mission he's on. And thirdly, we're going to look at the beneficiaries of this mission. So those are the three things we're going to look at. First of all, in verse 1, the man who is on the mission. Notice he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, that's an interesting introduction, and in there we have so much material. We could stop right here and have three weeks to talk about it, but we're not going to do that. We're going to spend about five minutes on it. First of all, notice not only his name, Paul, but he says a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, that word servant there could also be translated slave. That's what the word means. And he says he's a slave. Now, that's a fascinating way to start. Paul is saying that what he's writing and who he is is not based on himself, his own opinion, his own determination, but he serves at the will of a master. He is in a humble position. He is a servant. He is a slave. And that shows a certain humility. It shows a a, a certain deference that Paul has, that, that he's not promoting himself. He's promoting his master. But who is his master? He says it is Christ Jesus. Now, this is an interesting formula, servant of Christ Jesus. In the Old Testament, it was very common for prophets to call themselves the servants of God. And by saying that, it shows both their humility because they call themselves a servant, but it also shows the majesty of their office and role because they're not just a servant of anyone. Imagine, if you will, whether in the first century or today, that someone were to come to you and say they were a servant, and you say, oh, a servant, menial task, you know, someone who has to do what other people say. But then they say, I'm the servant of the king, or I'm the servant of the president, or I'm the servant of Congress, you know. Well, that takes on a whole new weight, doesn't it? Even though it is a humble position to be one who's completely directed by someone else, when you're directed by someone extraordinary, someone like God, or as Paul says, someone 
By Christ Jesus, now I take them not just as a nobody, but as a nobody who works for a somebody. And that's what Paul is saying. You know, I'm coming as the servant of Christ Jesus. Now, there are a couple things that we want to see just in his use of that expression, Christ Jesus. As I said in the Old Testament, it was common for the writers to say they were servants of God. And here Paul puts Jesus Christ in that role of exaltation. Not servant of God, but servant of Christ Jesus. He exalts him, but then he uses this title in the opposite way we usually hear it. Usually you hear the expression Jesus Christ. Here he reverses it. And it's Christ Jesus. Well, why does he do this? Perhaps because he wants us to to understand the title that Jesus has, because that's what Christ is. I know, I grew up, like most of you, thinking that was his last name. My name was Chris Hodge. His name was Jesus Christ. You know, he was of the Christ family. You know, uh, his, uh, his monogram said JC. But that's not it. Christ is a title. And here Paul appropriately puts that title before his name. And Christ meant anointed one. It meant rightful king. Appropriate ruler. And he says, I'm the servant of the ruler, the anointed one, who is Jesus. So we see that he is a servant, but he's a servant of Jesus. Secondly, we see he's an apostle. Now, called to be an apostle. Now, that word apostle means sent. And sometimes it's used to just anybody who's sent. So if I send you to go and uh, get me some ice cream, you're an apostle for that purpose. And the New Testament uses that word in that way. But it also uses it in a more technical way. And in the more technical way, it is someone who is sent by Jesus for the purpose of proclaiming who he is and proclaiming his gospel. We see Jesus do this in the gospels. When he takes the disciples and it says among them, he appointed 12 to be apostles. And there that word is being used as a title and not just a general reference to someone who's running an errand. But that title means someone who's been sent by Jesus for a specific purpose. And that's helpful for us. And it's helpful for the church in Rome. When the church in Rome heard this, that Paul is a servant of Jesus Christ and an apostle, what they understand is that the words that he's writing are not just the words of some random guy. They're not just words of someone who decided to write a book or a letter. These are words of someone who is fulfilling his job as an apostle. And so they hear these words, not casually, but they hear them with all the authority that an apostolic word would have. Because the apostolic word was authoritative. As a matter of fact, it was superintended by the Spirit. It was true and reliable. And so they hear this. And that's good for us to hear as well. Because too often, especially in the book of Romans, we can come to it and we can treat it like an academic treatise. And we can sort of start pulling it apart and looking at it and start thinking about it like a textbook. And before long, we find ourselves sort of arguing with it as though it was just the opinion of an academic. Well, it's not. It's the writing of an apostle. One who has been commissioned by God to give us his word. And so he tells us that right at the beginning. Thirdly, it says that he's called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Now, that word set apart is such a great word. That means he, he had a life. You know, he was a Pharisee. He was actually trying to kill the church, to destroy the church. But God called him and set him apart for another mission altogether. And what was the mission? The gospel of God. Now, sometimes you might hear that word gospel thrown around and you might say, what, 
What does that word really mean, gospel? Well, the word means good news. That's what it means. It means good news. So what does Paul mean when he uses it in this very shorthand way, the gospel of God? Well, he's referring to the good news that God has brought salvation through Jesus Christ. I mean, that's really the the, the smallest nugget you can make it. The good news that God has brought salvation through Jesus Christ. Paul says that, that is what I, as an apostle, have been assigned to accomplish. He wasn't, he wasn't assigned to build cities or roads. He wasn't assigned to go and, and uh, do a lot of administration. His apostolic call was all about sharing the good news that God was offering salvation through Jesus Christ. That's who Paul is. That's the man on a mission. Okay. Well, now we know. But what exactly is this mission? You know, what is the message of the mission? What is Paul, this apostle, going out and communicating? We see it encapsulated beautifully in verse 2 through 5. The first thing he says about this mission is that it's not new or novel, that it is something that it's been promised. Look at verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is important for Paul to say to this church who doesn't know him very well. This message that he's delivering is not something he made up. It's not something that came out of thin air. This message is a message that is being communicated through all of the Old Testament scriptures, through the prophets of the Old Testament. Now, I know we think, oh, prophets of the Old Testament, those are those guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. No, in first century, the prophets included all of the writers of the Old Testament. They called them the former prophets and the latter prophets. And the former prophets included people like Moses. And so Paul is saying that all of the Old Testament was talking about his message. And what is his message? The message of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, if we wanted to take 16, 17, 18 years to get through the passage, we would stop right here. And we would go back to Genesis chapter 3, and we would begin showing every single place where Jesus is talked about as being the promised salvation that would come from God. And we could start in Genesis 3.15, and then we can go on through the life and promises to Abraham, and then we can talk about how that's passed to Isaac and Jacob and the twelve children of Jacob and, and the, and the uh, uh, slavery in Egypt and the delivery from Egypt and every part of the Old Testament. We could talk about how that's talking. It's talking about this promise of God that he's going to bring salvation through Jesus Christ. But we're not going to do that. We're just going to let you know that that's what it's about. Now, we will do that whenever we're in the Old Testament. That's exactly what we do. We show how it relates to Jesus Christ. But here Paul makes reference to it and says, it's not new, it's not novel, I didn't make it up. It's something that was promised beforehand. Secondly, this message of Paul's is very Christocentric. Now, I love that word. It it sounds good in my mouth. Christocentric just means it's centered on Christ. The center of this message Paul is preaching is Jesus Christ. And we see that, don't we, in verse 3. He says it's concerning his son. This message is concerning God's son. Now here Paul uses this expression, his son, you know, in a way that shows us that Jesus is a son of God in a way that no one else is, can be, or will be. Jesus is God's unique son. And what do we mean by that? What we mean by that, that Jesus is God. We've been looking at it 
over the Christmas season. For instance, in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, a reference to Jesus the Son, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What, what Paul is saying is this is about the unique God, man, Jesus Christ, God's Son. But notice what else he says about it. Who was descended from David according to the flesh. This this son, this God, this deity became a man in the flesh. He was descended from the seed of David. What that means is that he actually came here. He came to this place. Even though he was the eternal son, even though he's God, he became a person. He took on flesh. That's what Christmas is about. It's about the incarnation. And Paul says, this is my message. It's about Jesus, that even though he was God, he became a man. He became someone enfleshed. But he didn't just become any kind of flesh. He became flesh in the seed or through the seed of David. Now, David, if we went back and looked at First and Second Samuel, we would see David was the one God said, not only am I going to let you be the ruler of my people, but I'm going to make your family in such a way that you will always have a descendant on the throne of Israel. And so Jesus, when he comes, is not some, uh, you know, interloper. He's not someone who takes over the throne. He's one born to it. In the flesh, he comes as a, as a rightful heir of the throne of the people of God. And Paul says that's the way he came in the flesh. But he goes on to say, that's not all that I want to talk about, Jesus. In verse 4, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, he came in the flesh, he was a man, but then he was, notice the text here says, was declared to be the Son of God in power. Now, this is an interesting issue there, that that word declared normally is uh, translated as appointed. And so you would read it in that case, and he was appointed to be the Son of God. And to be honest, translators, including the translators of the ESV, are just uncomfortable with that. Because it sounds like, well, are you saying he wasn't the Son of God? And then he became the Son of God? You know, that he got an appointment to it? And that throws him, so they use the word declared. And it's not uncommon, but I don't think we need to be afraid of it. What Paul is saying is that he came in the flesh, he had a mission to accomplish the promise given to David, He accomplished it through his death, which is implied in the idea of a resurrection. He died for sin. He died in the place of those who had rebelled against God. And he rose from the dead. And because of this, God has appointed him as the the king of glory. And I say I'm not not worried about this because Philippians 2 follows the same logic trail. If you were to go over and look at Philippians chapter 2, you'd find Paul teaching the Philippian church that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, even though he had it. And so he emptied himself, and he took on the form of a servant, and he became obedient even to death. But then it says God exalted him, gave him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow. And I think Paul is saying a very similar thing here. The story of Jesus is that because of his perfect life, death, and resurrection, he has been appointed the fulfiller of Psalm 110, where God says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at my feet. Paul says, this is the Jesus I'm talking about. Even though he came in the flesh, he has been appointed to be the king of glory. 
He started as the Son in glory. He ends in the Son in glory. This is what the gospel is about. Now, why is this important for us? We've got to stop and ask the question as we study a book like this, because we can get lost in it. Why is it important that this message is Christocentric? Because that means it's not Chris-centric. It's not Mary-centric. It's not Jane-centric. The gospel isn't ultimately about you or me or about what we can get out of it. It's ultimately about the person of Jesus Christ. When we tell people the good news, we don't need to just tell them about how it benefits us, but we need to tell them about who it's about. You know, the gospel really isn't about me. It's about Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying right at the beginning. His message is Christocentric. Thirdly, the message of the mission has a product. Notice, you know, as he talks, after he talks about the Christocentric nature of the gospel, he says in verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. See, there's a, there's a product of this message. Paul has a goal in mind. Now, I, I hope that all of you in your work, that you have a goal that you're trying to accomplish. Paul, in sharing this message that had been promised beforehand, centered in Jesus, there's something he wants. And what does he want? He wants to see the obedience of faith. Now, that's an interesting expression. It makes one wonder, well, is it obedience or is it faith? And so here are two ways that we could look at this. When he uses this expression, you know, about the obedience of faith, it could mean either faith is the appropriate obedience to the message of the gospel. So in other words, to obey the gospel, to respond to it in an appropriate way, the only thing you can do is have faith, to believe it. And that's true. Or it could mean that Paul is saying that the the product of this message is that people believe and then it produces obedience in their life. Right? So it could be that they believe and then there's a new obedience in their life. I don't think it's either. I think it's both. What Paul is saying is the product of the, of the gospel is that people understand the nature of who Jesus is. When they understand that Jesus is not just some guy who lived, you know, a long time ago, but when they realize that he is the rightful king, not just of Israel, but of all the world, then he demands our complete and utter obedience, doesn't he? If he is the rightful ruler of all the world, then then our response must be to submit to him, to become his servant, as Paul has already declared himself to be. That's the only appropriate response to someone who is a true sovereign, is an obedience. But that obedience must be faith. And you say, well, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, you believe in him, but do you see all obedience is faith? And Paul will talk about this later. All obedience is faith. If I am honoring Jesus Christ, the only way I can do that is through his strength, his help, his spirit. The only way I can do it is to continue to look to him for the strength and ability to follow him. That's faith. It is an obedience that is faith. And a faith that is obedience, it is both. And I think that's what Paul is saying. The product is people who are obeying in faith. And that helps me because that's the product that should be there in my life and in your life. Am I seeing the gospel as something that has a demand on my life? And the demand is that I obey by faith, that I 
that I say, I believe it. I trust him. I'll follow him. And all that that implies, this is the product. But that's not all the product. Notice Paul says he wants that obedience and faith in who? All the nations. All the nations. There's an ad. I see it on a truck every now and then whenever I'm driving around town. And it's for Sherman Williams. And I believe they have the most ecologically unfriendly logo of any company on the planet. Because their motto is cover the earth. Okay? And on their, on their logo, they have a globe and they've got a paint can pouring paint, paint over the entire earth. Now, is that ecologically friendly? No. It's, they need to change that. But I laugh at it every time I see it. You know, that their goal is to, to sell paint products in, in the whole world. Paul says his goal, the, the message that he's declaring, is that people will respond in this faith, and this obedient faith, that they will respond among all the nations. His scope is not tiny, it's huge, it's unlimited. And isn't that glorious? Isn't that glorious? Because as looking around this room, I see the nations. Because for Paul, that would have been Gentiles. And that's anybody who's not a Jew. And looking around this room, it seems that most of us, if not all of us, are the nations. And this message that Paul has brought is for people like us. But it's not only for people like us. It's for people like our next door neighbor and our coworker and the person on the train or the plane. The good news, the gospel that's centered in Jesus Christ is so that the obedience and faith will be experienced by all peoples. And this is a beautiful statement that Paul says that's the product. But what is the purpose? What is the purpose? See, there's a difference between a product. The product is obedience and faith among all the nations. But what's the purpose of that obedience and faith among the nations? And we see it in that line that we've already read. Obedience of faith for the sake of his name. The purpose of Paul's message is that the name of Jesus Christ will be exalted. That his fame will spread. We live in a world that understands fame spreading, don't we? I mean, if you want to be popular, if you want to make money in the entertainment industry and other things, you want to get a lot of followers. Isn't that interesting we call it that? You want a lot of followers. People are following you on Twitter, people who liked you. It is funny, our terminology. Just think about it for a second, about what we're saying about ourselves. We want people to follow us and like us, you know. And we want as many of those people as possible... Because then our fame will grow. If I make a little video and I want to become famous, i got to get as many people viewing it as possible. And if I do that, then my glory will grow. People will say, you've got the hottest YouTube video in the country. And I can feel so good about myself for like 20 minutes. And that's the goal. Paul is about a different kind of fame. He says he shares his message so that the obedience of faith will spread to all the nations so that the fame of Jesus Christ will be seen. For the name of Jesus. In other words, Paul understands that the only appropriate response to Jesus Christ is all people and all the earth declaring him to be king and Lord because that's who he is. He says that's what my message is about. Well, that's what we need to be about. Individually, as a church, Is that our purpose? Do we do what we do so that people will like us or brag about us? Or do we do what we do so that people will brag about Jesus? That's the goal. That is the purpose of his ministry. So thirdly and lastly, 
And I would say I'll take three minutes, but I'll probably take more like six. But on the bright side, it's going to take you longer to get home anyway in this mess. So we're just going to we're just going to hang in there because it, I want us to look at the beneficiaries of this message, because this is this is why I think you want to be here as we study Romans, because this book is being written to a group of people who enjoy some amazing benefits, you know, from God. Who are the beneficiaries, you know, of this mission? We see it as Paul talks to the Romans directly here in verse six and seven. Notice says, first of all, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So right there we have two. To those of you, including you. In other words, I'm going to, my goal, my, my, my hope is that I will spread the obedience of faith to all the nations. And he says, church in Rome, you're among those people. You're among the nations. And this shows us that Paul's writing to a church that seems to be probably predominantly uh, Gentile. Now, we know there are Jews there because he greets some Jews at the end of the book, but it's predominantly Gentile. And the reason for that is because, uh, you know, a few years earlier, in 49 AD, the Jews had actually been expelled from the city of Rome. They'd been expelled from the city of Rome because the, the emperor kept hearing about these conflicts that were going on involving this Crestus. And most historians believe that the conflicts were over the, the introduction of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the emperor just heard the name wrong. It wasn't Crestus, it was Christ. And so he expels the Jews. He just doesn't want the trouble. Now, by the time this letter is written, the Jews have begun to come back. But because of their absence, the Jewish church continued to grow as predominantly a Gentile church. So here Paul says, you, you Roman Christians, you Naperville Presbyterian Christians, You are a part of this goal because you're among the nations and you've begun to understand the glory of the gospel of God in Jesus Christ. And notice what he says about them. What are the beneficiaries? He says, first of all, you're called. You're called. Now, when I was a kid, my mom would call me all the time. I mean, I played outside, you know, all the time. I lived in a place where you could do that. And uh, uh, she would come to the back door and it'd be, Chris, come in for dinner. You know, she'd yell as loud as she could. Trust me, I'm, I'm tapering it a little bit because we've got little people in here, you know. And you know what? That call was not very effective. Generally, I waited till the third call when my life would be threatened. I mean, you know, why, why come the first call? Why come the second call? I mean, really, when, I, when the sort of I felt like it, that's when I went. But this is not the kind of call that Paul is talking about. Here, the kind of call when he says that they are called... This is a this is an irresistible call. This is a call that that actually accomplishes its purpose. He said you are you are called, you are you are invited in in such a way that you come. He says you're called secondly, you're called to belong. You're called to belong. Why is there so much activity on social media? Why is it that we want a large number of friends or people following us? Isn't it because we want to believe that we belong? That there's a group of people in, in which we're comfortable. They know us. We know them. We care about each other. We keep up with each other. We want a belonging. Paul says, if you listen, if you hear this message, if you're a part of, of, of this kingdom, you belong. You're called to belong. But not just to belong to each other, but belong to Jesus. Can you imagine anything greater? Look, I am super weird about my stuff. Okay, I mean, I know there's some stuff I don't care about, but the stuff I care about, I like to know where it is and what it's doing at all times. So if I come into the house 
For those of you who hang out with me now, I've given you permission that you know how to mess with me. If I come into the house and my wallet is moved six inches, I know. If my mouse is in a different place, I know. If my computer's been open, I know. You know, if my car has been moved, I know. And I'll make a comment. And my wife will get defensive. And this is the way our system works. Did you touch my wallet? Did you move my keys? You know, and it's because it's my stuff. Now, I know it's God's stuff. I remember that sermon, too. It is God's stuff, but it's the stuff. It's God's stuff that I'm a steward of, and I'm trying to watch over it. And so I keep up with my stuff. I care about it. We're Jesus's. We belong to him. Do you think he doesn't know who we are or where we are or what's going on in our life? We belong to him. He cares for us. And you say, well, you can, you can have stuff that belongs to you and not care at all about it. You know, like people own pets and they neglect them. But no, these beneficiaries are not only called and they not only belong, but notice verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God. You not only are owned, you not only belong, but you're loved. You're loved. By God. Now look, if you're loved by me, that's good. And you are loved by me. But my love is small. My love is finite. My love is limited. My love is flawed. God's love is infinite and perfect. And here he says, if you are the beneficiary of my message, you are not only called, you not only belong, but you're loved. These statements, called, belong, loved, and the others that will come are like love bombs that we need to let explode in our lives. You know, I mean, you kind of think of a water balloon. A water balloon's got all that water in it, and it looks like jello. But, you know, as long as it's in that water, as long as it's in there, it's not going to have the effect of soaking you. You know, you need to let these love bombs land on you and soak you with the love of God. That's what Paul is saying. When you understand the gospel, you understand that you're called, you belong, you're loved. Fourthly, that you're holy. He says you are loved by God and called to be saints. Now, I know some of you might have grown up in traditions where you thought a saint was someone who died and it turned out that they had a, you know, a superfluous amount of merit, you know, and they were declared to be saints, you know, by a central group of people. That is not what Paul means by saint. Paul means by saint. That word saint, you know, is from the same root word as the word sanctified. It means holy. You are called to be holy. You are called to be set apart. That's who you are. You're not like the rest of the world. God has set his affection on you and you are different. You are saints. How about if we address ours, each other like that? I mean, I grew up in a tradition where we called each other brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so. But what if we actually called each other Saint Chris, Saint Nate, Saint Jane, Saint Karen? You know, Saint, well, that'd be impractical and people think we were weird, but that's what we are. Paul says, that's who you are. If you're a beneficiary of the gospel, if you believed in it, if you are one of those people obedient in faith, then you are called to be saints. Lastly, you're blessed. You're blessed. Notice to those in Rome, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, I think he's... He's borrowing from the great priestly blessing that I, I love and I, I will use at the end of this service from, from Numbers. You know, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Here he shortens it. Grace and peace. 
In other words, the beneficiaries of this message are people who experience, finally, the grace and peace of God. And grace means what I don't deserve. You think, man, I can't qualify for this. Exactly, that's why it's grace. The blessing is you get that calling, that belonging, that love, not because of what you've done, but because He wants to give it to you. Because of His grace. And then I can experience His peace. Peace is not just an absence of war, but it's a a sense of well-being. It's a sense that things are right in the world. And I know that's hard to believe since I look out the window and it's still snowing, which Nate loves. Praise God. But how can things be right in the world when when i got to go home and shovel my driveway? They can be right because God has given me good news about salvation through Jesus Christ. And in Him... Regardless of the weather or absence of it, I can experience the grace and peace of God. This is why we study his word, so that we might find more of those benefits as we study it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you for how good you are to us to give us your word. That even in the introduction of this book, there is so much richness. Lord, I just pray, Lord, that we will not... Get overwhelmed by it so that our senses shut down, but that we will let it soak in. That we will swim around in it. That we will begin asking ourselves questions. Am I experiencing this? Do I see Jesus as this? Am I enjoying this benefit? And that in prayer, Lord, that we will we will call you to these things you have taught us to encourage our hearts and expand our enjoyment of you. Oh, Lord, give us grace that we might know you and that we might know how known and loved we are by you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.